Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 29 of Discovering the Old Testament. We're back after a brief hiatus. I'm actually quite excited about what we are preparing to do next, which is the book of Isaiah. I plan on spending some extra time on this particular part of the Old Testament. One reason why is because between 2012 and 2013, my spouse Denise and I led a weekly seminar on Isaiah at Christ Church Episcopal in Portola Valley, California, where we went through this amazing book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over a period of 14 months. This seminar proved to be a watershed for us in more ways than one. One of the outcomes was the decision to launch this podcast, among other things. It was a highly rewarding experience, and we all had a blast. Incidentally, I want to thank the attendees of the seminar, and especially Father Mitch Lindemann, who helped put it together. The other reason why I'm excited about these next few episodes is because Isaiah is a truly pivotal book in the Hebrew Scriptures. It represents a major evolutionary shift in religious and social priorities that were controversial at the time, but have become normative philosophically and doctrinally in Judaism. Moreover, not only Judaism, but Islam and particularly Christianity owe much of their ideas and zeitgeist to Isaiah. It's not for nothing that many scholars through the ages refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. To give you some idea of the influence of Isaiah on the fundamental documents of Christianity, consider this analysis by mid-20th century Old Testament scholar Victor Ludlow. Quote, There are at least 71 passages in the New Testament in which Isaiah is either quoted or expressly referred to as his teachings are cited or paraphrased. Except for the Book of Psalms, with 89 references, no other Old Testament book is quoted or referred to more times in the New Testament. For those who like to keep more careful track of such references, Isaiah is quoted or referred to ten times in Matthew, seven times in Mark, six times in Luke, four times in John, five times in Acts, sixteen times in Romans, nine times in First and Second Corinthians, one time each in Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, and Hebrews, six times in Peter, and four times in Revelation. Looking at it from another direction, 31 of Isaiah's 66 chapters are quoted in the New Testament, ranging from 1 to 66, with the heaviest concentration coming from chapters 6, 8, 28, 29, 40, 49, 52, and 53. To put it another way, if you want to acquire a deep understanding of the New Testament, you have to spend a lot of time studying Isaiah. There's just no way around it. 
For such an important author, we really don't know very much about Isaiah himself. He was believed to be highly educated and a member of elite society in Jerusalem. The power of his writing, the poetry, the imagery, makes it plain that this was someone who knew how to use words. The choice of images and descriptions of the land indicate to many scholars that Isaiah was an urbanite. His apparent access to the royal court also seems to reinforce the notion that he was one of the aristocracy. The book is considered by many scholars to be the high watermark for Old Testament theology. Modern biblical scholarship divides the book into three parts. First Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, written by the prophet himself, mostly during the Assyrian crisis in the second half of the 8th century BCE, when Jerusalem and Israel were in fear for their very existence. Second Isaiah, that would be chapters 40 through 55 and possibly also 13 and 14, is believed to be the product of Isaiah's students writing during the exile in Babylon. Third Isaiah, chapters 56 through 66, appears to be less distinct and contains additional matters, including some very late material that reflects ideas borrowed from Persian Zoroastrianism. One problem with reading Isaiah is that the various chapters do not appear in chronological order. This makes it confusing for readers who are not familiar with the historical context of First Isaiah in particular, since that section of the book is set in a rapidly changing world in which the people of Judah and uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem were very much afraid from what appeared to be the unstoppable might of the Assyrian military machine. One of the central events around which first Isaiah revolves is the siege of Jerusalem, in which the army of Assyrian king Sennacherib surrounded the city, but was forced to withdraw because of a devastating plague that swept through his camp. The Bible, naturally, ascribes it to the power of God. Sennacherib's account is more shall we say, understated. One of the difficulties faced by Isaiah in his preaching is that his fellow citizens drew the wrong lessons from their deliverance and failed to see the basic flaws in their behavior, their society, even their religion that left them vulnerable to divine retribution and chastisement. Chapter 1 is a bit out of historical sequence. Based on the description of widespread desolation and Jerusalem left standing, but very precariously, we place this chapter after the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib in 701 BCE. However, it beautifully lays out the main themes that mark 1st Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah ascribes the sins of his fellow Israelites not to evil, but to ignorance. They don't understand what they are doing. Their actions are, from the prophet's perspective, incomprehensible. The next part of the chapter raises two very pointed and radical 
assertions. Quote, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Close quote. Well, first, he compares Jerusalem's leaders and people to those of Sodom and Gomorrah, a clear indication that he marks the city as doomed. An important thing to remember is that in references to Sodom and Gomorrah outside of Genesis, virtually all of them condemn those cities explicitly because of their neglect of the poor and the needy, stating unequivocally that this is the primary reason they were destroyed. But what follows is a truly stunning statement. Isaiah claims that God essentially rejects the sacrificial system as a useless exercise. After the section quoted above, the text continues by asking the Jews not to trample the temple court, that bringing offerings is futile. He even calls incense an abomination. Now, I don't know if Isaiah is using the word abomination in the same uh, sense that it appears in Leviticus, where it has a particular technical meaning, but trust me, in this context, it's still pretty harsh. God is not only weary of assemblies, festivals, and even Sabbaths, but his soul literally hates them, so much so that he isn't even listening when people pray. The takeaway point here is that, according to Isaiah, the outward expressions of Jewish law and religion, the things that basically define Judaism, are worthless. God is not impressed. Better that they should be scrapped, because they are now empty and meaningless. Isaiah's condemnation of the Jewish religious and ruling institutions is thorough and uncompromising. There is no wiggle room. They stand completely condemned. The way back into God's favor is stated with economy and precision. Verses 15 through 17 of chapter 1. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Quote. A return to God's favor is to restore justice, which in this case means rescuing the oppressed. The terms widow and orphan, by the way, did not mean that unless you were a widow or orphan you were out of luck. It was a catch-all phrase for anyone who was vulnerable. We might compare it to our phrase, down and out, which is a generic term for those who are facing hard times. Isaiah is nothing if not single-minded on this theme. Where the conduct of religion is concerned, the entirety of the Jewish cult is expendable and worthless when balanced against 
how the people treat the less fortunate. For Isaiah, this is what, quite literally, makes his or any other people worth saving. Chapter 2 begins with a famous poem about the potential for good among the nations. Verses 2 and 3. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in, as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's a lot going on here, so let's parse some of this out. First, the phrase, in days to come, is sometimes translated, in the latter days, notably in the KJV. This phrase is often taken to mean that this is a vision of the far future, but it really isn't. The phrase appears elsewhere with the clear meaning of in the future, with no implication of significant temporal distance. The mountain of the Lord's house is a metaphorical way of describing a temple or temple complex. Temples in the ancient Near East, and in many other parts of the world, were designed to represent a mountain as a point that connects heaven, earth, and the underworld. In fact, throughout the ancient world, temple complexes were seen as the centers of law. God's word is revealed in the temple. They were centers of covenant and used for covenant renewal ceremonies. Temples were viewed as essential elements in creating and maintaining a proper social order. For the Jewish religion, the mountain temple symbolism is inextricably connected with Mount Sinai, and this was implicit in their temple typology. The experience on Sinai was, and remains, the defining moment in Judaism, the fount of its uniqueness and chosen standing. But here we see something rather interesting. Isaiah's version is that all nations are going to this mountain of the Lord's house to learn God's ways. In this imagined future, Israel is no longer unique in this regard. Isaiah looks to a time when every nation has the opportunity to undergo their own Sinai experience and, by implication, benefit from those teachings. And what is to be the result? Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. On a personal note, it is impossible for me to read those words without feeling moved. There are few expressions of hope, of universal peace stated with such such power and eloquence. What really stands out is that just as Isaiah rejected Judah's pride of place as a chosen nation, Isaiah now critiques the ideology, held universally at the time, that a nation's strength and prestige was a function of how well it could meet and beat its enemies on the battlefield. 
Israel derived much of its national pride from the conquests of King David. Isaiah is dismissing that by implication, while he further envisions a world where a common vocabulary of law and goodwill has become so prevalent that war is not merely absent, but forgotten as a subject of study. Verse 5 continues, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's a stern rebuke here. If foreign nations are capable of learning to live and abide by the Torah, how much more should God's chosen people do so? This passage becomes even more remarkable when one stops to consider the historical context. Isaiah is writing these words in the wake of a disastrous encounter with the Assyrian army, one in which Jerusalem barely escaped complete destruction. Over forty of her fortified cities had been reduced and destroyed. Judah's agricultural infrastructure had been ravaged. Thousands of her people, her armies, butchered by an enemy that has become a proverb for terror and savagery as much for its own stake as for their use as tools of statecraft. They were an empire who, when they finally met their end roughly a century later, prompted unrestrained joy and gloating from their former victims. Unmourned, unlamented, they vanished completely from history until archaeologists in the 19th century rediscovered their culture and began deciphering their language. But Isaiah does not fall into the easy pathway by dreaming of a day of vengeance or retribution against a hated enemy that had not only ravaged Judah, but had years before eliminated the northern kingdom of the ten tribes and caused them to cease to exist as a nation. Isaiah looks for a radically different world, governed for the sake of peace, where the priorities of the powerful are justice for those without power, and differences are settled without war. Just as remarkably, Isaiah's vision includes all nations, even, by implication, Assyria. No one gets left out. Unfortunately for Judah, Isaiah does not see an easy way for this very positive future. The remainder of chapter 2 carries dire predictions of tragedy and loss before Israel can realize this new world. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, speak to another major theme in Isaiah, and that is the coming day of the Lord. Quote, the haughty eyes of people shall be brought low, and the pride of everyone shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high. Close quote. Like the passage about a world ruled by law and justice, this has been misread by many modern interpreters to refer to the apocalyptic end times seen in late Jewish and later Christian eschatology, but Isaiah uses the term day of the Lord differently. He's not talking about a once-and-for-all cosmic smackdown of all that is evil, but a moment in which God intervenes in the world to correct what has become an intolerable state of injustice and social disorder. 
after which the assumption is that things will continue to spin on until such time as another day of the Lord is needed to correct the course of events. Isaiah's vision of a better world is only possible through serious divine intervention, and he predicts that God's people are not going to like it very much. There will be destruction, privation, hunger, death, bondage, and humiliation. The trappings of wealth, gold, silver, commercial enterprises, vast armies and armaments, all must be purged. Ironically, Isaiah pictures this purging of the effects of gold and silver using the imagery of a metal worker smelting away these impurities. This brings us to yet another theme of Isaiah, not explicitly stated here, but found repeatedly throughout the book and which we will see in future episodes. The theme is this. In spite of what happens to Judah, to God's people, there will always be a remnant who survives, with whom God can begin again. Isaiah's God is one who, for all his wrath and fury, is always willing to restore, rebuild, and begin again. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.